Welcome to The Social Minute, the podcast that looks at the social network minute by minute. And today we shall be covering minute number 86, which goes from 125 to 125.59 on the clock. Um, we are in the second half of the race. Uh, the Winklevosses are um, rowing as hard as they can against the Dutch. Uh, the Dutch are rowing even harder and uh, they lose um, by three quarters of a length. A very, very, for in this type of race, that is a very close loss. Um, and uh, we don't get to fully see the loss because we'll cover that in the next minute. Um, but that's pretty much this minute is just, you know, the second half of the race. Uh, and joining me to talk about today is Alice Lauren. Hello, Alice. Hey, Darren. What's up? The race started in the previous minute. Um, you know, about 40 seconds of that was there was a little bit of scene setting. And then we got the kind of the start of the race. We're kind of thrown in mid race um, here. And, um, you know, as depicted, this is a fairly accurate uh, depiction of this race. Uh, you can find this race if you search around online. Um, and it was very close. Um, you know, the uh, Hollander Rowy Club, I believe is how you say their name. Um, they beat um, Harvard. Uh, Harvard had actually in the semi-finals had beaten uh, Cambridge uh, by one third of a length. Uh, and they lose here by two thirds of a length. So they, these, those are two very, very close races. Um, it was raced on the first Sunday, I think, of July in 2004. Um, and uh, it's, I think it's uh, from, I, I don't understand how Henley do their results. Um, it says Barrier 149, Forley 303, uh, race uh, 617. I think those are splits. Um, so the first split was 1 minute 49, the second was 3 seconds past 3. The whole race was only 6 minutes 17 uh, from end to end. Um, on the Sunday there uh, a little bit a little bit quicker than the race that they ran, raced the day before uh, where, where they did that in 633 um, so you know they flew all that way for the space of 12 minutes of rowing um, and that was their weekend um, in the script Aaron Sorkin is a little bit kind of uh, more dramatic um, he's kind of talking about how um, you know the the boats are breathing just as the skulls slice through the water like jet-powered knives, um, and he says there's there's no daylight between them. Uh, the Dutch and the American fans are going crazy. Um, you know it's the they're caught, getting caught up in the closest race in the history of the competition, which cannot be true because the race they ran race before this was closer. Um, there's a lot of descriptions here about you know um, the the father and mother of the twins, kind of their reactions in the crowd. But I don't think we really see that in the race. No, no. You know, so I guess Aaron Sorkin had an idea of you know the father's disappointment and the the mother's you know kind of tr tragic loss of, of this race, but that isn't a feature of it. Um, it's mostly focused on the faces of the the, the rowers, um, all of whom I think, aside from the Winklevoss twins, as played by the actors, were all professional rowers. Um, mm. So they are effectively they are rowing, um, you know, much like stunt men doing stunts. These are rowers doing rowing, and uh, you know it is. I I think it's probably one of my favourite sequences in the film. I remember when I saw it at the cinema. Um, you know, due to the way it was shot. You know, this kind of tilt shift photography they were using which made it kind of look weird and kind of miniature and um and then that combined with the music i was like you know i'm, I'm not really a fan of rowing um over here we have the uh, the boat race which is between oxford and cambridge uh which takes place i, I don't know sometime in july i think i'm not really uh, like i say not really much of a fan of it but it's kind of been going on for 130 years something like that um 
And that's actually rode over a, a lot longer distance. Usually takes uh, like I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, something like that for them to row it. And so I'm not really a big fan of rowing. Uh, I don't really care about that kind of stuff. But then this just makes this like, I don't know, really exciting. I'm watching it and I'm like, if all rowing was like this, then I think I would be interested in it. But I, I don't think that, uh, you know, like the BBC could make the uh, Oxford Cambridge boat race uh, this exciting. Yeah, yeah. The music definitely added a lot a lot to the urgency of it because, yeah, it was not. And, and I think even like the very, I mean, it's great to have the, the close ups, of course, to see kind of the mental anguish on their on their faces, you know. But I think if it was something like Olympic rowing for example where i can see you know who is farther who is you know kind of the big picture so to speak i think that would have been maybe more exciting in a way it's funny because they shot it they shot the actual rowing on um on on the henley on thames they actually went to henley they shot it there um the 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 boat club cooperated they were like sure you know we'll throw up a couple of stands we'll have some people out there and like they basically got it all together and they they shot that as the main thing but for the close-ups of the rowers they couldn't they had such a tight schedule they couldn't do it actually on the like the 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 um the river so they shot that in um eaton um in like a a, a man-made lake um, yeah. so, so all the close-ups are shot on a lake, uh, but all the wide shots are actually on the, on the actual course that was rowed by the Winklevoss twins. Um, and this was one of the last things that was shot for the film. Um, it was shot in the July of 2010 and the film came out in, in like the September. So they only had, it was about six weeks before the film was, was going to be released. And so they, that's one of the reasons why they used the kind of tilt shift blurring kind of technique was because they knew they could do it quickly and they wouldn't have to worry too much about, you know, the detail in the background and everything. So they didn't have to kind of set everything up perfectly. Um, and I think it really works, you know, like uh, just kind of the, the cutting between the different teams um, you know, you can obviously see that they definitely are rowing because you kind of feel the strain on their faces as they're they're yeah. kind of with each pull, um, and and like you say, the kind of anguish on their faces, you know, at the loss. Uh, it's just it's such a well kind of done sequence for something that was effectively shot within a couple of days. You know, six weeks before the film had to be released. Yeah, I just feel like it's almost like a, I guess ADD kind of pacing where I'm like I can't even focus on it's such such a quick shot from close to far to this you know team to this team to this to this, and it's just it, it's you know it, i understand that that's the pace of their rowing as well but it, it it just i don't know i i wish it kind of had maybe lingered a little bit more on on faces on wide shots because it's just a little bit too much like i'm seeing this for a second this for a second this wide shot this close shot it's just it's weird this person this different person <laughs> <laughs> yeah some of that is by design though because uh the, the close-up shots uh in the man-made lake apparently they didn't really match the river shots mm. so they had to kind of cut them a bit close so that you couldn't tell that in the background there was kind of like just more water um so some of that is it you know was kind of forced on them um but there i mean there is one shot about i don't know 10 or 11 seconds into this first minute where you see like the little scoreboard thing and they they show you how close the boats are together by using like these little pieces of wood mm-hmm. um but again i i don't i i don't think that kind of like the spatial kind of uh you know uh kind of the dimensions of where the boats are mm-hmm. is really important to the sequence i think really david fincher is kind of just going for the emotion 
uh, of the rowers um, yeah. and you know just the look on their faces um, you know I think I, I think only once in my life I've ever tried a, a rowing machine and I think after about kind of 20 seconds I gave up and I was like no no like I just, right, I just yeah. I'm, not, yeah. I'm, I'm not a rower so kind of seeing the, the kind of the, the pain on the rowers faces as they're doing each stroke it's it's it kind of feels very visceral um, you know and I, I think it's funny because obviously this is being told from the point of view of the Winklevoss twins so we're not celebrating the victory of the Dutch um, yeah. which you know they they rode really well they out rode you know the Harvard team and they they won by two thirds of a length so you know it's it's kind and, of impressive yeah. and the Dutch are acting it better too I think because I'm like looking at it it's like I don't know just I mean they have you know the Dutch I mean I would assume were the actual the the real rowers you know the professionals so you could definitely yeah. see that definitely helped the performance it looks like Prince Harry is on their team as well I was like he had a cameo a couple of times so that was uh that might just be what what uh, upper class people look like in yeah, this country yeah no, uh, I think funny. that's what that is <laughs> yeah um uh, so yeah so you know I think the thing that really makes this sequence uh is the music um you know a uh, thing is when I first saw this at the cinema, I was like, this sounds distinctly like something out of Clockwork Orange. Um, and that was deliberate because Trent Reznor and um, Atticus Finch, they deliberately kind of um, scored this uh, version of In the Hall of the Mountain King to sound like a uh, Wendy Carlos composition. Uh, Where is that Carlos original o- song from? I'm like, because for some reason I'm getting like Nightmare Before Christmas vibes. Like, I don't know what where is that song? it was like bothering me like watching it i'm like where is that original piece from like what do i why do i know this classic <laughs> <laughs> i i think uh it's been used in a number of different um mm-hmm. kind of formats it's pro i would say uh i mean it's actually from uh uh the um the opera i think it is the opera uh, Peer gint oh okay yeah like operatic yeah yeah and so uh, but that the kind of just the the use of in the hall of the mountain king is you know it's kind of um, it's it's kind of being used all over the place, um, you know in in so many different kind of settings, um, and I think because the the kind of the melody of it um, is is so kind of catchy, yeah, um, and also the song has this I mean, kind of in the bass it only really goes between the we're not getting too technical but the first and the fifth. Um, on each chord so it it kind of it feels like it has no kind of grounding like you can kind of tell what key it's in but you can't um, and then the kind of the melody is a bit more kind of manic over the top of it uh, you know because the the bass line is very very kind of like uh, it's just kind of like on on the beat it's just you know a very simple kind of four four but over the top you have this very kind of quick um, kind of uh, melody um, and it, you know it's mostly known because uh it's it's mainly pl- when it's played um you know by a, a classical orchestra it's mostly played by the the lower instruments so you have like um you know cellos uh, double basses bassoons all of those kind of start off and then over the top you get the you know the kind of the you know the melody which is played with the higher instruments but it's known for kind of starting with that bass um uh, I think once you've synthesized it, though, it all kind of, <laughs> you can't really tell between the bass and the, the higher notes. It all kind of sounds the same. Um, but I think that's obviously deliberate. Um, uh, but yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting because it has the, um, you know, the, the kind of the dun dun, dun dun, that kind of, those little kind of halts. Um, in the opera, it actually has lyrics. 
which are um, they're not sung in English, but in English, um, that little dun 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 is slay him, slay him. <laughs> and the lyrics translate as may I hack him on the fingers, may I tug him by the hair, let me bite him in the haunches, he shall be boiled into broth and brie to me, <laughs> he shall roast on a spit and be browned in a stew pan. Ice to your blood, friends. And that's the that's Her the kind of English race. translation. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, I guess the kind of slay him, slay him is is kind of um, is kind of uh, kind of works. It's interesting because obviously, um, you know, Grieg is kind of one of those composers. Um, he's kind of known for being a what they used to call a nationalist composer, which is somebody who would uh, try to use um, kind of well-known folk melodies and put them in kind of, kind of classical settings. Um, you know, and uh, he, he like he kind of did that with um, I think it, I think he's Finnish. I don't want to say he's not Finnish uh, and get that wrong. Um, I, I could almost swear he's definitely no, I, I, I was wrong. He's Norwegian. Um, so he took kind of Norwegian folk music and he would compose with that folk music. And uh, in the Hall of the Mountain King from um, Pier Gint is kind of one of those songs that is kind of uh, based on a well-known kind of like folk melody. Um, and in a similar vein, you know, like uh, Sibelius and uh, Dvorak and uh, Janáček, like there's a lot of kind of nationalist composers um, who would take kind of folk songs and then turn them into like classical music uh, as a way of preserving them. Um, and, you know, there were a lot of them who would kind of uh, particularly uh, Janáček and, and some of his kind of contemporaries, they would travel like around the countryside and kind of get folk melodies from kind of, you know, people and then take them back and kind of compose them into songs that would then, you know, obviously they felt would last longer than the folk songs, which, you know, mostly were being kind of passed down by like oral tradition and stuff. Um, and that is something that Grieg would do as well, is like take these kind of well-known folk melodies and, you know, kind of translate them into songs that kind of helped. I mean, in particular with the kind of the national identity, like, you know, he was very kind of much about, you know, taking Norwegian music and making it kind of last for, you know, Norwegians, um, which I, I mean, um, I obviously I don't know if people can tell, but I studied music when I was in school and 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 kind of folk kind of folk composers was one of the things that I had to study. And uh, it's kind of interesting because you like a lot of them were, were very much like, we, you know, this music is going to disappear if we don't kind of use it. And so that's one of the things that they kind of did was like to take this music and kind of um, and also kind of defiantly compose in their own languages. You know, obviously a lot of operas and stuff were composed in you know Italian. Uh, even if people weren't Italian, they would compose operas and they would do them in, in Italian uh, for many years. And so, you know, these composers, when they did their own operas, they would do them in, you know, Norwegian or Hungarian or and they would kind of make the, the fact that it was not in, you know, Italian would be like the selling point. It's like here is, you know, here is opera, but it's not for kind of, you know, people who have to speak Italian or, you know, a lot of people who watch opera in Italian probably don't understand any lyrics. Um, it was kind of like here is here is the opera in our language so we can understand what's going on and kind of, you know, bringing that art form and kind of, you know, kind of bringing it to the people. Um, yeah. Which, you know, it kind of almost goes against what a boat race is about because a boat race is like the most elite kind of activity. And the fact that we've got like a prince here presenting, the, you know, the winning team with their award, it's kind of like that's not re that's not really what Grieg was about. But, uh, you know, I still love the kind of the, the style that they've taken. Um, and Wendy Carlos is such a kind of interesting composer. You know, the work that she did with with Stanley Kubrick, she composed for like three or four of his films and. 
um, you know, particularly Clockwork Orange, like the kind of the use of Beethoven, but kind of with synthesizers uh, is such a kind of, uh, I don't know, it's kind of an interesting idea to take. Uh, I guess I guess these days it might seem a bit more kind of hacky, but kind of to take well-known kind of classical pieces and redo them using modern instruments um, in the 70s. Obviously, that means, you know, a lot of synthesizers. Um, but I like here the kind of basically straight away when I was listening to this in the cinema, I was like, this just sounds like somebody trying to do a Wendy Carlos type thing. Mm -hmm. And I was glad when I read the interviews with them and they were like, yeah, you know, like basically because this was the last thing done. David Finch was like, do what you want. And they were kind of like, well, OK, we've got this idea. We want to, you know, we want to use synthesizers. We want to take this Greek piece and we want to do this with it. And he was like, go ahead. <laughs> and that's what they did. Yeah. Um, you know, and this is like literally the last thing they composed for the for the soundtrack, like literally a few weeks before the film came out. Um, but it's just it's just a wonderful use of this music. I mean, Greek's music is uh, is really good. Peer Gint is really good. I would, you know, I would suggest anybody listen to that. But like literally any version of in the in the hall of the of the Mountain King is is just like a you know a fun uh, thing. He's done a lot of um, you know he did a lot of sonatas. There's a few piano concertos of his which are really good as well. Um, Grieg's just really he's just a, he was just a really good composer. Um, one of those people in the 19th century who married his own cousin as well. So, <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, I'm looking at kind of what movies and things that this this piece has kind of been in and you were, you were saying that it was just you know kind of to celebrate their you know their history and you know kind of i don't know like putting synthesizers and that's you know is it hacky is it not really hacky and it's interesting to see kind of the diversity that this has been in i mean this was in the birth of a nation like the you know the racism movie in 1915 you know which i guess is how kind of part of you know how we got that into american folklore and then we have sonic the hedgehog right <laughs> so like that right we go we go to that which is also with the flight of the bumblebee so that i think that was also kind of what was getting in my head that little flight of the bumblebee thing they did like a trap version in the movie trolls that's that, I, I haven't even seen Trolls, so that's crazy. <laughs> it was in a Cracker commercial in 1990. I mean, there's just so... And then all the video games it's been in. I mean, it's just it's just amazing. It's been in The Simpsons. I mean, so many different <laughs> different ways that, they, that they've used that piece of music. So no wonder it's, like, just there in my head, you know? It's like the, like the Jaws theme. I haven't, I haven't even seen Jaws, and you know the, you know, you know the Jaws theme, so... <laughs> yeah. I think as well, you know, the, the the like the special like the thing about in the hall of the Mountain King, which kind of um, I think is is one of the things that people kind of relate to is uh, or, or let's say enjoy is the fact that it speeds up as the song goes on. So yeah. you can't like the melody doesn't change that much, but it just gets quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker. And it's one of those things that if you've got a you know if you've got a good orchestra. They should be able to kind of follow along with the kind of the pace of this thing and be able to do the kind of changes really easily. Um, and, you know, kind of I mean, when I was studying music, one of the things they would have is there are certain pieces that they'll give to orchestras to kind of test them and just be like, you know, just play. It should be easy for you to play this. So just play this. And, you know, and this is kind of one of the pieces that you give it to an orchestra and you just kind of speed it up and speed it up and speed it up as the composer until it kind of gets almost ridiculous and just see if if they can kind of keep up with it. And, you know, it's a sign of a good orchestra if they can just keep going as fast as they possibly can playing it. Um, and that's probably where you also associate it with the Flight of the Bumblebee yeah. as well, because that yeah. is another song 
but you know it's one of those things that just kind of gets a bit quicker and quicker and quicker as it goes along mm-hmm. um but yeah i don't know i just i really love this sequence um and you know we don't get the big finish to it until the next minute because <laughs> there's like one more chord that we don't quite get yeah i was like trying to figure i didn't even know who won who didn't win is it when they passed the clock i don't know i yeah. like I, I like i'm not sure what i'm celebrating or not celebrating really. <laughs> there's like a there's like a gunshot noise i think about 10 seconds before the end of this oh, first minute okay. where that's that's the end of the race um and you kind oh, of see okay. you see the dutch celebrate very briefly and then you see the winklevoss twins kind of put yeah. their rows their oars down and just kind of look you know despondent um but yeah i i you know i don't think you even really need to follow along what's going on like just the the music kind of gives you the drama of what's happening and the you know the kind of you know the yeah. just the kind of feeling of being in a race um and how kind of focused in particular you know like uh, the winklevoss twins have been you know this is something that's been going on throughout the whole film they keep talking about you know their course load and how much rowing they've got to do and how much practice and all that so this is kind of the the you know the first since the you know i don't know what was it like 10 or 11 minutes in when we first met them and they're rowing on the charles and now we actually get to see them in competition and it's like oh so this is this is what they've been preparing for um and you know they end up losing (laughs) not by much but they still end up losing um and so i think it's quite funny it's like oh you know they've kind of talked a good game up until this point but even as accomplished as they are as rowers um it's it's interesting to see that there are there are better rowers out there um you know like they can be beaten like they're not just because there's you know six two and there's two of them doesn't mean that they're invincible um and i think it's kind of nice that as we get to the final few minutes with the wink of us twins we kind of see uh that they're actually vulnerable you know and that they can't they can be beaten and maybe that's the motivation for why you know what happens later on this week happens but I think it's kind of interesting that this is the kind of the big kind of thing. Um, and also, I like how just as the race ends, we see Divya and he kind of uh, kind of looks towards Cameron. And he's like, he kind of pulls a face because he, kind of, he knows that they're not going to be happy after the race. Um, but I, it's, it's kind of funny because um, in this and, and, and a few minutes time, we get a lot of kind of expressions from Divya. Um, you know, he's, he's kind of very his face is very kind of expressive in these few minutes. Uh, but I just think it's funny that he, like he reacts to it, but kind of almost with the knowledge that he knows that when he sees them in a few minutes' time after they've you know um, finished the race and everything and got changed and, and whatever, he knows that they're not going to be happy with what's just happened, um, and so he's kind of almost prote- preparing himself for it. Yeah. Um, so, is there anything else that you wanted to bring up in this minute, or do you feel that we've uh, we've covered? I mean, it's it's a great metaphor for you know they were just so close with that idea with what was, I mean I don't know how far into development they got but basically that it was just you know swiped you know swiped away from them so that was interesting i mean did that did that race in real life kind of take place amidst all all of this or because i could imagine this was put in for drama we'll see see the parallels between you know this race that they just barely lost you know versus some you know their whole idea being stolen from them i mean i would assume that's not exactly how it was in real life, in you know, timing-wise, but I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they lost this race. Uh, I think it was either like the, I don't know, fifth or sixth of July, two thousand four. So it was kind of just. I mean, Facebook had launched what February two thousand four, mm. so it was a few months after Facebook had launched, and um, you know, the membership was around a hundred thousand at this point. Mm. Um, I think it's. Sli- I think by the time they got to Palo Alto, it's it it got even bigger. Um, 
but you know so this this is kind of accurate in terms of the time timing of it um they didn't start to sue mark zuckerberg until kind of towards the end of 2004 mm-hmm. um so it was you know a few months after this but still you know close enough that they had already kind of had their meeting with Larry Summers and they'd already kind of sent him the cease and desist letter and, you know, all of that stuff, which will be described later on in the week by um, uh, by Tyler. Um, you know, they'd done all that and this was the point in which they kind of decided to sue him. So it's kind of accurate within the timeline. I guess it's just helpful for David Fincher that they happened to lose a race around right, this time. Yeah. Just, you know. I mean, no matter what, it's always a, a parallel. I mean, I heard they... I think got six in in the Olympic rowing competition, so they're always just just that. Well, I mean, six is not just a bit off, but just a bit off of of everything they try to accomplish. So yeah, and I think I think the thing is as well. This goes back to what is you know what Mark discusses with Erica in the opening minutes of the film, which is how do you stand out? You know, like um, if you're an Olympic rower, well, you know, you're in a field with uh, you know what 120, 130 other people who are at least as good as you. And, you know, even here we see, you know, there's uh, I think this is an eight man team with a with a, a Cox. So there's there's nine of you in the boat and there's nine of them in the boat. So, you know, between the 18 of you, you know, <laughs> they happen to be the better nine and you happen to be in the bottom nine. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, that's still out of, you know, the people that like get to compete at, um, at Henley. Uh, they are like the elite rowing teams of the world. Like, the, you know, you're, you're in the kind of to get in to compete in these races you have to be kind of in the top 10 anyway. Mm. Um, but it's then how do you distinguish yourself? And, and at that point, you know, you are, it, it, when it comes to something like this, you are, are going to be first or you're going to be second. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I don't know, it kind of makes me think a little bit of, um, of uh, Talladega Nights where it's like, if you're not first, you're last. Um, yeah. And and so, but yeah, it's just, it's just a coincidence that they happen to lose at this point. But then, you know... Um, like the the whole point of Mark's speech at the beginning of the film is that everyone at Harvard is the elite. How do you distinguish yourself amongst the elite? Um, so you know, on a normal day, the Winklevosses could probably beat me at rowing. I think quite easily. Um, but you know, as soon as you put them in the Olympics, then they're against other you know people who are at least on their level. And obviously, at least five of them were better than them. So, <laughs> so yeah, you know, yeah. it's but still, you know, t- number six in the world. That's the that's the whole thing. Like you know, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I, I couldn't make six. No, no. no. <laughs> so, um, well, is there anything else that needs to be said, or do you think we can uh, we can wrap this up? think we can wrap it up okay well uh i will ask the monday question then which is did you see the social network at the cinema i you know what i kind of feel like i did i pardon me like i must have right but i i don't remember i you know i was thinking earlier i'm like we're gonna have to title this this minute and every every minute basically this was nine years ago because (laughs) i feel like this was like 2016 i I, I, I do not, rem- I don't know, maybe. I sort of have a vague recollection that I saw it in, in theaters, or maybe I saw it after the Oscars. I don't, I feel like I did. We'll just say probably. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it. <laughs> okay. 2010 was last year, right? <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, it feels like that. Saying that, I feel, I feel like that about the year 2000 and 1990. I feel like they were only a couple of years ago. Um, so the fact that 2010 is after them makes me feel even older. Uh, well then, is there anything that you would wish to plug, Alice? Um, well, I have been on a lot of podcasts recently, but you can 
kind of find me on, on Twitter. You can find some of the podcasts that I was on on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter is A-L-I-M-E-Z-H, Ali Mej. Uh, my Facebook is Alice Lauren. Um, Lauren spelled L-A-U-R-E-N. And just find me there. And you can find us on MySpace at myspace.com slash the social minute or on Twitter at social underscore minute or on Facebook at the social minute podcast. Thanks once more for being my guest here today, Alice. Awesome. It was fun. And I'll see you tomorrow.